all-gen worship effort that TJ has been putting forward. And man, I, I love having the kiddos up here. They're not here every week, but when they are, it's always, it's always really good. And uh, Teaching them what it means to be worship leaders, what worship really is. And I really like that effort of our church. This morning, uh, we're going to start a new series. Man, I love, uh, I love when everything's back to normal, right? Some of you feel like this summer has been all over the place. I especially feel like this summer has been all over the place. Uh, the month of July, I feel like I slept in my own bed maybe 10 or 11 times, and the rest of the time we were gone. And that's a good thing, and that's a tiring thing all at the same time. But we're about to go back, and kids are going back to school. Hallelujah. And uh, they are out of your house and into their normal. Our kids are homeschooled, so it doesn't matter to us. We're still like, oh, yeah, welcome back to school, kids. Um, and so we had this kind of weird dynamic in our home, but it's okay. Uh, most of them are going to go back. We're kind of get settled in. Uh, Jess and I feel this on a, on a, a deep spiritual level where we can go uh, to Walmart in the middle of the week and nobody's there. And we're like, oh, this is so great. Like, not everybody's here. We're like kind of we get reclusive and hermit style every once in a while. And so we just, we just feel this settling in our, in our gut. And we kind of feel like this is everybody's getting back to their normal places. And, um, and I love that. We're going to start the series this morning answering the question, who are you? And, and it may be a, a kind of redundant question. I'm glad everybody's wearing their name tags. Even before I got up and did the announcement, I saw people wearing uh, their name tags. And that's a good thing because I feel like everybody in here kind of knows everybody. And everybody in here has known each other uh, since they were little. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've always said this. If you back up far enough from the Warren uh, tree, family tree, you're all either related or you've dated right? And I think, like I wrote that statement down, I thought that's going to be my next marriage series title, Related or Dated, because I believe that's true for 99% of you. I was at an event on, two, on Thursday night. Uh, we did an open house at Eastside, and we gave away some information about our kids' ministry and bottles of water to whoever wanted them. And, and I was talking to somebody, and they said, oh yeah, I'm related to them one way or the other. And I said, of course you are. Everybody in this town is related. I am not related. The only person I'm related to in this town is my wife and my kids because we're outsiders, right? We didn't grow up here. But everybody else, you know each other. You know that name tag. You know the name behind that name tag. And I believe that there's a striving thing that's kind of inside of all of us that, that we're really going to address over the, next, uh, over the next couple of minutes is this idea of wanting to be somebody. Everybody wants to be somebody. And, and I, I know this is true because we all want somebody to know our name. We want, we want to not have to wear these stickers because we want everybody to kind of know us, even if uh, even if this idea of famous and being famous is, is narrowed down to being small town famous, we're still okay with that. I talked to a guy this past week who was talking about his son and how his son was a middle school All-American. And I just kind of looked at him and he goes, they don't make those. That's not a real thing. But he peaked in junior high and he said he was a middle school All-American. I was like, that's great. I mean, that just lines up exactly with what I'm going to talk about on Sunday because this idea of just wanting to be famous, even if it's just in our own little circle. I, I listened to a podcast this last week and did some research on my own. And here's some statistics that I found that are pretty interesting. 10 to 12-year-olds, 10 to 12-year-olds, their main goal in life is to be famous. Not to be financially stable, not to, to marry a good man or a good woman, not to have a really cool job. When I was 10 or 12, I wanted to be a firefighter or, a, or an astronaut. They want to be famous. Why? Because in the world that they live in right now, you can be famous for anything. 
right? When I was a kid, you had to be really good at something to be famous. I had, listen, in my room when I was a kid growing up, I had Michael Jordan posters on my wall, right? I had those right next to my WWF posters of like wrestlers who were all, all makeup out because that's what wrestlers used to wear. I don't know why. And then we had all these people who we looked up to because they did something incredible. Either they were a great athlete or they were a great singer or they were a talented actor or they were an astronaut or they were somebody that did something that we as normal people could not do. Listen. That's not the case anymore. Like you could be famous for being really bad at things. And we know this because of American Idol, right? We know that you go back, I'm talking about not now, not when all the judges are really nice, not now, but like way back when they were like really mean. And y'all remember the boy, uh, William Hung? Y'all remember that, the Shebangs guy? You know that he had an actual record deal and got paid money because he sang so poorly. And like he's famous and everybody knows that guy because he was so awful. And, and now we have kids who grow up in a world where they watch YouTube all day, and my kids watch YouTube and specific channels of YouTube, and, and they watch guys like Dude Perfect who, who are famous because they do all these ridiculous trick shots and it probably takes them six weeks to make one video. But then they watch kids, kids who are their age, who are famous for playing with toys, who like they get free stuff and they get Legos and they get video games so that they'll record themselves playing with the toy and put it online. And my kids sit around and don't play with their own toys to watch another kid play with his toys. And he's famous. He gets paid money to do it. And my kids grow up going, I don't want to do that. I'm like, yeah, because you all want to be famous. Look at this next one. This is great. A study of 1,032 16-year-olds. More than half of them said, quote, they had no desire to go into professions that did not involve becoming a celebrity. And you think, oh, it's, that's okay, they're 16. No, that's not okay. Because 16 is just two years away from 18, and at 18, you're considered an adult. You can vote, you can buy cigarettes, you can do all kinds of stuff. You're supposed to go off to college, you're supposed to, you're supposed to be an adult at 18. And two years prior to that, they don't want to do anything that doesn't involve being a celebrity. Because they're growing up in a world where celebrity is king and fame is a monster. This next stat I have on here is, is great. 18 to 25 year olds. The, the study said that, that becoming rich is not as important as being famous. They don't care if they're, they're rich. They just want everybody to know who they are. And then this last one. Listen, I'm going to hit that button I think one time, Mark. 22 to 37 years. If you're in that age group, raise your hand. 22 to 37. We're going to make fun of you just for a minute. Everybody goes, I'm not in that age group anymore. Everybody puts their hand up. Dustin did this like he's real slick, right? 50% of you believe that your lives should be made into a movie. 50%. You know what the other 50% are doing? They're laughing at you because they know your movie is going to be awful, right? Why would anybody watch your movie? But they truly believe that. I, listen, I got family members that say all the time, we should have our own reality show. I'm like, no, you shouldn't. You're dumb. Nobody's going to watch you. Right? This is the reality of who we are because we're growing up in this world where we think that we are that important. We are that famous. To become a household name, one in 12 would disown their family. One in 12. One in nine would give up the possibility of ever being married. And one in six would give up the possibility of ever having children just to be famous, just so they don't ever have to wear this name tag again because everybody knows who they are. And here's what I bet. 
I bet that no matter what you wrote down on this name tag, hopefully you wrote your own name down, because sometimes we have people in here that don't. Just, I'd be willing to bet, even, even if you were famous, that name on your name tag doesn't tell me who you really are. Because who you really are goes deeper than this. Because this can change just as simple as me writing a new one and putting it on there. Because that's what we do, I think. I think we just continue to wear these name tags of who everybody thinks that we are, everybody thinks that we should be. And it doesn't really get down to the issue of who we really are. A lot of you are going to be around people over the next few days. Teachers and administrators, coaches. Coaches probably already have, already have been. Uh, our Wednesday volunteers, our Wednesday ministry volunteers are going to be around a bunch of kids who are, who are, number one, asking that question about you. Who are you? But they're also asking that question about themselves. Who am I, really? Who am I? We've got kids who are, I was talking at the end of the service last week um, with Kathy Cornish, and she said, man, we've got kids who are struggling. We've got sixth graders coming to, to, to school talking about how they're atheists. Sixth graders. I said, sixth graders don't even know what an atheist is. She said, I know, but that's what they're telling me they are. We have, we have kids who are, who, you know, we have, like, in high school, I think there's, I don't even know what it's called, God Squad, something like that, Bible group, whatever. I don't know what it is. But they, they have, a, like, a Bible group of, of kids. They want, and sixth graders are wanting their own uh, LGBTQ groups. Sixth grade. Because they're trying to figure out who they really are. And, they're, and they, listen, they're confused. And they're trying to answer that question, and they're getting answers from all the wrong places. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to try to figure that out together. We're going to see what Scripture says. Because over and over again, when we look in Scripture, it tells us who we are, right? Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says that we are a chosen people, a royal nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, right? You know that in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says we are children of God. And in John 15, 15, it says that we are friends of God. If you keep reading through Romans chapter 8, it says that we are more than conquerors, right? We know that verse. We love that verse. And then finally in Colossians 3.12, it says that we are God's chosen ones. And those are all great verses and those are all great things that we should know, things that we probably should have memorized, but it doesn't really tell us who we are. It doesn't really, doesn't really mean anything unless you know what it means. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today that I believe tells us exactly who we are and who we are becoming and so if you've got your Bible, let's go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, is, a great, uh, is a great passage of Scripture. What we're going to see here is probably the very most popular verse out of the whole book of 2 Corinthians. One that when I read it, it's already on the screen. You're all going to go, oh yeah, I know that verse. Well, we're going to read this and we're going to even go further beyond it. So if you don't have your Bible, or if you don't have a, an app or an iPad or anything, so it should be on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says this, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Now, if you've been in church circles for a while, maybe you've heard this verse, maybe you're very familiar with this. If you've grown up in this church, then certainly you're already familiar with this verse of Scripture. But I believe we've been kind of walking through this this summer. If you've been with us over the summer months, we, we looked at a, a series that I entitled Wandering the Desert. We looked at the, the Israelites after they got out of Egypt and kind of their process of trying to get into what God's promised them. And, and y'all remember how they were, they were longing 
for pots of meat in Egypt when they were in the desert. They were going, oh, if we could just be back in Egypt, we could have our old life back. And, and I believe a lot of us are in that same position still in our life that we are, we are already new. We are already made new. We understand that because of what Christ did for us and His sacrifice on the cross and because of our belief in Him that we have this newness and this new life in Him. But we're living in the new and we're longing for the old. Many of us are still in this mindset of, oh, gosh, if I could just live in the good old days, if I could just live like I used to live, if I could just go back, and God's saying, you can't, that's old life, that stuff. That's, that's your old creation. Now you're something brand new. Stop living in the old. Stop, stop desiring something that's already ta- gone away. Some of us are living in the new, and we're longing for the old. And then verse 18 and 19 he tells us that we are this new creation, but it's only because of what Christ has done, how He has reconciled us to Himself. He's, he's made us right. He's made us new. He says, all this is from God. This new creation, this new life, this is all from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ. And this, listen, this is really important not counting men's sins against them. This is incredible. This, is, this means that there's not condemnation, that God's not sitting back judging and condemning us to hell, not condemning us to, to a life of, of paying it back. He's saying He's not counting men's sins against them when He reconciles us. He's not holding us eternally accountable. He's not keeping us at arm's length, but He's letting us in. He says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity to be close. Even, even though you've done all this, even, even with all this baggage that we carry around, even with all this junk that we've done in our past, I'm reconciling you to me through Christ. And he says, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's a really cool responsibility, right? Not that we are the, 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 the point of reconciling, but, but we, are, we are to minister reconciliation to other people, which means, listen, we understand this gift, this incredible gift that we've been given, how God is not holding our sins against us, but because of who Jesus is and who He has become to us, we are now close to God. And He goes, now, now that you understand that, go tell that to other people. That is your ministry of reconciliation. Some of us, man, that's incredible. Some of that's a little overwhelming. That's a big, huge responsibility. And then in verse 20, Paul says exactly who we are. And this is kind of our verse for today. It's this really important moment. It says, therefore, we are, because we've been given this responsibility of reconcilers, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We employ you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Did you catch what we are? We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is the highest ranking official that goes to a foreign country that represents his or her home country. And so if you are the ambassador to Spain, then when you go to Spain, you are representing the United States in Spain. That what you say is essentially what the United States says. If you go to Brazil, or if you go to Kenya, if you go to 
I don't know if Portugal's a country. It may be just a state. If, if you go to these four countries, I was going to say Portugal, but I don't know if that's an actual country, if that's just my geography is bad. Um, and so if you go to these different places, whether it's Canada or if it's uh, Honduras or if it's, uh, you know, United, if it goes to the United Kingdom or whatever, you are the United States representative. That, that what you say, how you act, how you respond is how the United States says, acts, and responds. And when we see that we are Christ's ambassadors, then Paul is telling us here that, that you and I, that we are the representation of Christ on earth. That our home, that our forever home is, is, is not here. It's in heaven. And that what we say should be what Christ would say that how we love should be how he would love. How we extend mercy and grace and forgiveness and patience and all those other things should be a real life example of what Christ would do because we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. We are his example, his mouthpiece. We are his ambassadors. And for many of us, that's great news. That's freedom. That is like, that is incredible. We're so excited. We get to give grace. We get to give mercy. We get to be examples of who Christ is. We get to love people how, how God loves people because, man, if it was on our own, we couldn't do that. But I can walk up to somebody who I don't like and still say, man, I, I, I love you because God loves you. And man, he's got a plan for your life. And that is freeing for a lot of us. But for others, it scares us to death. It scares us to death because we know that we're not a good representation of who Christ is. That our lives don't line up with who He is. That, that when we look at the big picture, that, that we're not doing a very good job of pointing people to who Jesus is because we're not a good representation of that. So this is my two hard statements I've got underneath this idea that we are Christ's ambassadors. Number one, some of you are not representing well. Let's just kind of hit it right in the mouth, right where it goes, because this is what we're supposed to do. You're in this ambassador position, and you look like, and act like, and talk like, and love like, and parent like, and spend like, and have marriages like, and run your finances like, and run your businesses like, everybody else in this world. And it says that we're not this world's ambassador to Christ. It says we are Christ's ambassador to the world. And listen, I get it. Like, I get it. Life is hard. And sometimes things come at you fast and things are kind of all over the place. And we have stressors and responsibilities and jobs and kids and deadlines and all this stuff. But when we remember that we've been reconciled, that, that God's not holding our sin against us, that he's brought us in, close in, then why in the world would we not want to represent that well? Why in the world will we not want to, to, to live up to the calling that He's placed in our life, to live up to the standard that He's placed in our life? We, we've been having these raise the bar meetings, right? And we're talking about trying to do everything better. Everything that we do should be better. It should be our very best because God deserves our very best. But guess what? That goes personally as well. Everything that I do should be his, my very best because He is worth it, because He has reconciled me to Him. Because he has already done that. Because I have been forgiven. Why would I not live up to the standard that he's set for me? And listen, some of us are not representing well. Second hard statement is this. Some of you are not representing the process well. 
And this hits home, I think, a little bit more for some of us because we love Jesus, right? We love Jesus. And we even maybe sometimes tell him, tell other people about that. But when life happens, like we, we turn into the most, the most sour people in the world, like, right? Sometimes Christians can just be the, the fun suckers of life. Because it's just like, oh, we love Jesus, but gosh, this is so hard, and I don't know if He loves me back. And we just walk around with our head down, and we don't represent the process well. The process of reconciling. Because guess what? Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes we even, sometimes we even fight against the process. We don't want to let go of that old life stuff. And we know that we've been reconciled. We know that we've been brought close, but we're fighting that process and we're, we're really resisting what's going on. And, and even our attitude and our demeanor and everything about us is so down in the dumps and so frustrated and so mad and so short with people that we love because we're going through something personally that God's trying to work through in our life and we're not representing the process well because we're His. And listen, we quote we quote scripture like the 23rd Psalm. Y'all know the 23rd Psalm, right? We, we quote this all the time. It's on the screen. This is the first four verses of the 23rd Psalm. And we, we love this one, right? This one makes us feel good. But if you read it, it's not as easy as it sounds. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That starts off really good. We like that, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. And when we see that in our mind, we think like, we think the rolling hills. Y'all remember the old Microsoft Word logo when you turned on your Microsoft computer and had that big rolling hill of green pasture, right? That's what we think that God's talking about. It's not. Do you know what a green pasture was to David? Who's writing these Psalms, who people who are so familiar with what a green pasture looked like? Dirt. It looked like dirt with like four green patches that would grow up in it. That is a green pasture to the Middle East. Got to remember where they're living. You got to remember that Jerusalem is not Kentucky, okay? And so it's 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 not this wonderful green lush with palm trees and oasises and people playing harps. That's not what it was. It was a very dry, dirty place. And when he said this green pasture, it was very small. The shepherds would literally take their sheep around their sheep's their sheep around uh, to find these little patches of grass. And when they find them, they were just like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing in the world. But it wasn't easy to find. And so when we think about this, it makes me lay down in, in green pastures. Don't, don't get it twisted. It's not easy. It's hard. He leads me by quiet waters and restores my soul. Man, we love that part. He's pouring into us. It's this, it's this thought of being my favorite, one of my favorite places in the world to be is on the beach, just sitting with my toes in the sound and hearing that whoosh, leads me by quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for His name. Why? His, His, His namesake, not ours. And then we say this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? We love that. We quote that all the time. But where are you at? Even though I walk through the mountaintops of all the good things that God does for me? No. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which means that you are scared to Listen, we don't talk about that. Because we gloss over, you're, you're with me, you're rod, and your, your staff, they comfort me, right? We, we like to go to that part real quick, but we've got to understand where we are in the process because sometimes the process is hard. And a lot of times we're in the valley. And we're in a place where it's not fun and we don't like to be. And he says, 
you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you know what the shepherd used his rod or staff for? Three things. One, to fight off the enemy. If there was some like a wolf coming or whatever, he would obviously strike the, the, the wolf or the, the attacker, the bear or whatever it would be, uh, with the rod. They would use it to defend the, the sheep. The second thing they would use it for is to, to guide the sheep. And so when the shepherd had his staff in his hand, if the sheep's starting to, because sheep are stupid. Did y'all know that? And what did the Bible say? That Jesus is the shepherd, which makes us what? The stupid sheep, right? And so sometimes we're moving off to the side and we're going a direction that we're not supposed to and, and the shepherd would just kind of come alongside of them and just kind of kind of get them back to the, the direction they're supposed to be going. He'd just kind of nudge you a little bit over this way. You know the third thing that the shepherd would use the staff for? To whop the sheep. To hit us. To get the one that's stubborn. To get the one that's like Dennis. To get the one that's like Lynn. To get the one that's like Matt. And he'd pop them with it. And the sheep would go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do. And they'd get back in line. They'd get back over with the rest of the other stupid sheep, right? Some of us want that rod and staff to be padded. Because after a while, we're like, God, come on. Would you just give me a break? You're just beating me over. Before we ever even started today, I elbowed a kid in the head. Amen, Pastor Matt, right? I, I just and, and Teague was sitting behind me, and I was trying to put my arm around my wife because I love her, and I just went, ah, right there. And Teague looked up at me like, what did you just do? I was thinking, that's a great analogy, Teague. You're the stupid sheep, and I get to be the, <laughs> the shepherd. But here's the deal. We want the, we want the staff to be padded because we don't, when, the, when he comes to correct us, we don't necessarily want it to hurt too bad. But remember, we're walking through the valley, and sometimes that correction is hard, and we've got to represent the process well. Some of us are not doing that. When God's trying to correct things in our life, when He's trying to do things in our life, listen, you walk away and you feel like you've been beaten up and God's going, I'm getting you back in line. And because we wander and because we get far, God has to bring us back. And sometimes that process is not an easy one, but it's worth it's worth it. Why would we think that He would not Hurt us to get us back. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we see men who did not live easy, luxurious lives. Paul, I mean, Paul, who's writing this, who, who was shipwrecked and who was stranded, who was stoned, who was left for dead, who on multiple occasions, if you read through the life of Paul, was the crowd was about to rip him limb from limb, quote-unquote. Um, we have... We have uh, John the Baptist, who is the predecessor of Jesus, who walked around talking about how you need to repent because the kingdom of God is near, talking about who Jesus is coming back. What happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded. Peter was crucified. Over and over and over again, we see John, the author of John, was left on an island to die. And, and over, we think, well, it's supposed to be easy. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble, right? That's, that's a pretty... Straight up statement. This is going to be hard. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Don't worry about what this world's going to do to you. I've, I've overcome all this. Just, just endure the process. Be faithful with the process. Represent the process well. Look back at that passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.20. It says, Therefore we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. Isn't that cool? We have to represent well because God's trying to show the whole world who He is through us. 
God's basically saying, hey, hey, lost and hurting world. Hey, hey, uh, this broken world, I'm the answer. Like, I'm your hope. I'm enough. I am the hope and forgiveness that you need. I'm the unconditional love that you've been looking for. And just, just look. Look at Betty as an example. Look at Miss Mary as an example. Hey, look at, look at Keith as an example. Look at Richards as an example. Look at Matt. Don't look at Matt Young. Look at, look at Tim as an example. Like, this is what life is supposed to be because, hey, they're, they're, I'm going to make my appeal through you. I'm going to let myself be known through us. Why would we not want to represent everything? Well, and he, he, he urges this one more time at the end of that. We implore you. That's a very strong word. We're begging you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God, meaning that you've got to be right. You've got to get reconciled. It all starts with you so that God can use you to show other people how great He is. Be reconciled to God. Now, because we're this new creation, we, have, we are this representative and His ambassadors, and we have this privilege of becoming something new, but it comes at a cost. Look at this very next verse, 521. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember, I told you it's going to tell us who we are and who we might become, and this is the might become part. Let's take this apart, this little verse. Let's do this backwards, okay? So that we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that word righteousness means? I've got the definition up here. This is really cool. Integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, Correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. When we we are we have to become we are becoming the righteousness of God. We are becoming the integrity of God, the purity of God, the right, correct way of thinking, feeling, and acting. And it has this other definition that I love. I put it under, as an asterisk. The state of him who is as he ought to be. To be righteous. To be the righteousness of God means that we are who we ought to be. We are who we were created to be. And isn't that what everybody wants to be? Isn't that, isn't that what we're all striving for? And now, now listen, like you can answer this question, the big question of who are you, right? Who are you? And you can say, yeah, I'm this new creation. I'm Christ's ambassadors. But even better than that, we can say, I am who I ought to be. I am who I was created to be. I am who God says that I am. I am who I ought to be. And we have the opportunity to do that because, remember the first part of this verse, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It was almost like this conditional clause. Because God did this, we have the ability to become the righteousness of God. But listen, listen to what God did. He made him who had no sin to be sin. God made Jesus, who was sinless, who was perfect, who was 100% man, but 100% God, to, to who even with his own words, his own verbiage, Jesus said that I and the Father are one, right? Remember that out of Scripture? He says that we are the same. Him who had no sin to be sin, not to be a sinner. Did you notice it's not that verbiage? It's very specific how Paul says it. He we are sinners, right? We give in temptation. We give into bad behavior. We struggle with, with all those things. The Bible calls it evil. We call it bad, but it, the, the real word is evil. 
We don't like to think about it like that, but sometimes we, we meddle with evil. We are sinners. But Paul doesn't say God made him who had no sin to experience sin or to, to become sinful or to struggle with sin. It says that God made him who had no sin to be sin, which means this. When, when Christ was on the cross, God didn't view him like a sinner. He didn't, he didn't view him like someone who had done something wrong. He saw Jesus as sin itself, the whole totality of sin he became. Now, why did he have to do that? Because Jesus didn't just die for specific sins. He didn't just die for drunkenness or adultery or for, uh, for lying or for cheating. He didn't die for specific things. He died for all of it. And so he couldn't be treated like a sinner. He had to be treated like sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died once and for all. For one time for all sins, one time for all men. Because we all struggle with some version of what he had to be. It had to be a complete, total surrender, sacrifice to what sin is so that we now have the ability to become the righteousness of God. Do you understand the magnitude of that sacrifice? It wasn't over certain sins and not over others. It was the whole thing. It was the whole idea, the whole concept of sin itself. Jesus had to become he had to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Listen, this is my big point, and I'm, I'm, I'm done. I think I've even got it on the screen. You are who you are because He is who He is. You are who you are because He is who He is. We could never become the righteousness of God if it weren't because of what Jesus did on the cross. We could never become right with Him or reconciled with Him or one with Him if He did not do what He did on the cross. We are who we are because He is who He is. And here's my last thought and I'm done. We cannot become ambassadors. We cannot become the righteousness of God or who we were created to be unless we are in right relationship with Him, unless we are reconciled with Him. We cannot be the right representation. We cannot represent the process. We can't represent Him. We can't do anything unless we are in right relationship with Him. Too many of us, I believe, are running from Him. We're running from Him instead of to Him. We're running away from what He has instead of to what He has. We're trying to earn our way and to be good enough our way and to be, to be holy enough somehow off of our standard. And we're not running to Him who reconciles us to Himself. It's nothing that we can do on our own. We can't earn it on our own. We can't be good enough on our own. And we're trying to earn favor by the name of that's on our tag. This doesn't matter. Who I am is inconsequential without who He is. I am nothing without Him. And listen, church, I believe 
that as we look through all this that we look through this morning, I wholeheartedly believe that there are some of us in this room that are trying to make a name for ourselves, and we are trying to be known by God by the things that we do and the things that we say and the things that we are involved in. And all the while, we're pointing back to that name tag and we're saying, but look who I am. Look who I've, what I've done. Look at all that is me. And when he sees that, he goes, yeah, but it's never going to be enough without what Jesus did for you. So I believe that for some of us, there's freedom in that. For some of us, there's fear in that. There's fear of, I've been trying for a long time on my own. But it really comes down to who He is. And that's why we put our faith and our hope and our trust in who Jesus is. That's why we walk people through what's called uh an idea of a sinner's prayer because that prayer is not magical. It's not, there's not like a special combination of words that we use. It is a surrender of your wants and your will and your desire to say, God, I am now yours because of who Jesus is and what he has done for me. I, I submit and I surrender and I give you the rest of who I am. I'm not perfect, but you make me perfect. I'm not whole, but you make me whole. I am not worthy, but Father, you reconcile me to yourself. We can't earn that on our own church. We can't can't be good enough without Him. We are who we are because of who He is. Wouldn't it be great to answer that question? I am because He is. Who are you? I am. I am because He is. I am who I am because He is who He is. I ask you to stand and I'm going to ask you to bow your head and TJ's going to come and you're going to sing over us and sing with us and, and listen. Some of you this morning need to just get that straightened out. You need to get that one most important thing right because you're trying to figure out who you are and you know you're nobody. You know you're nobody without Him. And you need to get that right, first of all. Be reconciled to God, right? Paul urges us. I implore you, be reconciled to God. Others of you need to start living it. You start start representing well. Whether it's Him or the process or both, we need to represent well. Some of you just say, you know what, I, I just need to... I need to be linked arms with other people. I need to be a part of a church. I need to finally join. I've been visiting for a long time, or maybe I haven't ever visited before, but I want to be a part of what God's doing here. Then this is your opportunity to do that. We, we open this up for whatever God's leading you to do. I'll be up here. Dustin will be up here. If you just want to come and pray or have us pray with you, we'd be happy to do that. This is your opportunity to respond to what God is calling you to. Don't miss this opportunity. Let me pray. And then TJ's going to sing. Father, we love you. Hey, this is Matt Overall, I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.